Hello, good day and welcome. And many apologies for all of you who've had to wait a little while. We had one or two slight technical issues. They've all been overcome. Delighted to be joined by Ian Williams, my old friend uh, and comrade of many years. Ian is the president of the Foreign Press Association of New York, former president of the UN Correspondents Association, um, famously uh, has in his long illustrious career in journalism had more columns than the Parthenon, um, has been uh, a, a staunch supporter and critic of the United Nations over these past 20, 30 years. He's in New York. Uh, he's also had a, taken us a long interest in the Middle East and Israel and Palestine in particular. Uh, he's a columnist um, for the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs amongst many others. And it's great to have you here, Ian. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, I hope all is well. I mean, I thought we, uh, we've we actually been at a separate uh, event um, today where we've been discussing um, Ukraine, the Russian invasion and partial occupation of that country. Uh, and we've also been talking about the uh, the desire, the need for uh, a greater degree of consistency. Uh, if anything good is to emerge from uh, this terrible uh, invasion of Ukraine and also the continuing occupation of a number of countries around the world, including Western Sahara, including uh, Palestine. Uh, we can discuss all of this. Uh, and of course, you know, we're also we can also touch on other conflicts that are taking place that aren't getting the same media attention and haven't had the same media attention, uh, such as the one in Yemen, which has just had its seventh or I think its eighth anniversary, 340 odd thousand people killed in that ongoing war in Yemen. So this cry of consistency is a is a powerful one. Um, Ian, looking at, uh, at the United Nations, I mean, this week, I think we've had the debate at the uh, United Nations Human Rights, uh, UNHCR, um, I, 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 beg, I beg your pardon, United Nations Human Rights Committee. Um, we've had a statement from Michelle Bachelet uh, talking about um, war crimes uh, being possibly committed by the Russians in Ukraine. We've also had, you know, uh, attempts um, uh, there and elsewhere to try and uh, stop investigating uh, potential war crimes that have taken place in the occupied territories. Uh, and I think today, I mean, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's actually been a vote um, with the UK and Ukraine actually abstaining on um, on action. I mean, I'd like to just to bring it up. Uh, the the to, the specific vote was uh, to uh, to see. Uh, I beg your pardon, I can't find it. But anyway, there there, there has been today um, a major development there. But Ian, if you can still see me, it's for temporarily I've just lost the uh, video. What, what, what I can your, see you. You can you can hear me. Uh, I, I shall, can see clearly now. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> Ian, tell us, tell us, if you will, you know, something about this kind of lack of consistency when it comes to Ukraine, when it comes to the Palestinian territories, when it comes to Western Sahara and what is needed. Well, I think it's an analogy that we used earlier in connection with Ukraine, but it's like the frog in the pan as the water warms up. And they don't notice it. It's too late when its skin starts searing off. Um, you know, if you plunge the frog into the hot water, it tends to notice right away and jump. And this is, to some extent, been what happened in the Middle East. Um, 
the occupation, the, the original war in 1967 had consequences and the Israeli occupied and it was all, I wouldn't say hunky-dory, but it's the way things are supposed to be in war. You know, there was an occupation, there was international, there were international observers. And then the Israelis have gradually turned up the heat over the years. And of course, the Palestinians have noticed that their skin is falling off with the heat, but the rest of the world hasn't because the rest of the world has gone along with it incrementally. I mean, the Israelis have taken a very long view, and they've also taken the view that if they pretend to do something or say they're going to do something, then no one's going to notice if they don't actually do it or they sort of veer it the other way. So they didn't move in and shift everyone else up Bainer Point immediately. But this whole case of legal warfare where people are dispossessed and the water's switched off and the transport is impeded, it's not as dramatic as running a column of 40 kilometer long column of tanks through the middle of Ukraine. So, you know, it isn't just uh, Western partial, partiality in here. There is a, a clear visible difference in how things have gone. And, and I have to say that, you know, the Ukrainians surprised everyone with their resistance. You know, maybe if the Palestinians had been armed in 1967 and their governments had trusted them, then there might well have been a different ending. Um, you know, the, there the, are the lots of different endings. But the real fact is that the Israelis have lied through their teeth for years and the West has chosen to believe them because the alternative, doing something about it, was too much. And we've discussed the reason for that in these. There's domestic lobbies, there's geopolitical things. And, you know, I was in, in the beginning, I was in, I don't want to sound like an old I am old, but I don't want to go to the old bits. I remember when all of our great left-wing heroes in the Labour Party, for example, were in Labour Friends of Israel because they all were taken in by the Zionist socialist idea. <clears throat> the pro-Arabs were the conservatives because they had all sort of, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and the you know, Sheikh, really good friend of mine, the king, he's, he's a good chap, um, the, and, the, and the oil. So, you know, the support for Palestinians in progressive Europe was fairly minimal. And unfortunately, that's actually still there. There's a huge uh, bedrock reservoir of sympathy for Israel and Zionism, Zionist socialism in, 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 people, in people across Europe and, and many of the third world because... It's the way we've been brought up. And we've seen how one of the things we've seen about Ukraine is just how tenacious these historical um, myths are. You know, that uh, the number of people who still think that Putin is some type of, you know, anti-colonial liberator running the third international, the ghost of the third international from Moscow is amazing. The number of people who still felt affinity for Milosevic because he was the successor of that nice man Tito and the non-aligned was incredible as well. And th these historical ha habits of thinking really work. I think we can see that with Guterres, the Secretary General, in his heart. He really can't believe the Israelis can do these things because they were always the nice socialists, the victims of the Holocaust. Uh, they went to the Socialist International. And they've carried that up. And, and you know, the, the, the counter-myth, the Arabs have often, the Arab states are often their own worst enemy on these things. Um, I mentioned, I discussed this with Dennis Healy, who was, uh, as you know, almost the British Prime Minister, and uh, the US, was he Deputy Prime Minister? He was, briefly, under Neil Kinnock. Yeah. yeah. So he 
he was explaining to me how they rebuilt the Socialist International after the Second World War. And, you know, he had a very jovial and avuncular tone about him. And he said, well, we were desperate for recruits. So we went to um, we, we, we went to Egypt and the uh, Butrus Ghali's party was uh, was willing to come in and we wanted them. So we took them, even though that party, as you know, was far from progressive. And he reminisced, he said, and, and in, in Lebanon, Wally Jumblatt and the Lebanese Socialist Movement, um, we asked them and I asked what their policy was. And he said to drink Maronite blood out of Maronite skulls. But he said he was a socialist, so he let him in anyway. <laughs> well, look, Ian, and, actually, and I mean, these type of prejudices come yeah. These are potent prejudices which we've never yes. managed to dull down. And let's face it. I did make a mistake. De Dennis Healy, in fact, was the shadow foreign secretary under. That's under, the one. Yes, yeah, he never he never became deputy. Uh, arguably, he should have become leader and possibly would have been a much better one than most Labour leaders that we've experienced in Indeed, our life. I have retrospectively um, wallowed in but, guilt for not supporting. Sadly, we're not here to discuss Dennis Healy, but it is worth pointing out, I think, because a lot of people are saying. Isn't it great that around the world, Ukraine is um, enlisting such great solidarity? And you can see it publicly in this country, in Britain, where I am. I don't know what it's like in the United States, but the Ukrainian flag is fluttering everywhere. People are volunteering to take refugees in. There are, there are, there are uh, donation centers. There are transports going out to Ukraine of all sorts of um, medical and food aid and everything else. Um, and of course, the you know the Russian invasion was a sh an absolute shock, not least to the Ukrainians, many of whom didn't believe that it would happen. And part of their country is now being occupied, um, including uh, we learned probably today the, the ruin, the smouldering ruins of Mariupol. But of course, people in the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Golan, which is an outright annexation, will say, "Well, hold on a minute, we've been occupied for fifty years." Um, and if we start calling for sanctions, people say, oh, no, you can't call for sanctions and boycotts and divestments. In fact, if any people do that in countries like Britain and Germany and America, we'll stop their organizations from calling for it. And by the way, um, we don't mind showing uh, video footage of brave Ukrainians making Molotov cocktails. They're freedom fighters. But if it comes to Palestinians making Molotov cocktail uh, cocktails or Western Saharans, well, they're terrorists. So this this grotesque double standards, isn't it? Really, that get, that sticks in a lot well, of people. The worst, the worst thing we could do, or the Palestinians and their supporters could do, is to say, "Well, we're not interested because there's no case there mm -hmm. because we're suffering." They should immediately try to associate at every level. There goes Kiev. What about Gaza? Same place, Mariupol, Gaza. Look at the photographs. Look mm. at those pictures of the young girl standing in front of the tank. Mm. And I mean, I have to say it. There were people standing in front of tanks in Russia. It didn't help Rachel Curry very much when she stood in front of an Israeli armored vehicle, did it? And, you know, these comparisons are invidious and must be made often over and over. And the legalities are there. You, you, mm. you hit upon it there. It's indisputable. Everyone can send that the Golan was the acquisition of foreign territory by force. Where the Israelis have tried their logic chopping is to say, well, actually, the West Bank wasn't part of any other country when we took it. So they say they're not occupied, they're disputed territories. 
which still doesn't allow them to do what they're doing in there, but it throws enough people off. And, you know, I've known uh, and you and aid to Madeleine Albright who argued that with me, that these are these are disputed territories. So the only dispute is with the reality, the Palestinian territories that Israel is occupying. Um, and you've got to you've got to emphasize and reemphasize that. But the other point is what we're talking about with um, Hitler. He was asked, his big example was, look what happened to the Armenians. Who cares? If you do it long enough and you get away with it, who cares? Most people have an infinite tolerance for the sufferings of others over a long period. Uh, and that, 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 that's what's been happening with the Palestinians. It, the stuff doesn't get into the media. And let's face it, who puts it? I mean, you know, you, you, you look at the Arab regimes who are representing the Palestinians. You know, when the Syrians or the Iraqis get up in the United Nations and denounce Israel, you, you, you immediately begin to take it with a pinch of salt. Who are these people? They might be right on this particular issue, but they're wrong on almost everything else. And the Palestinians internationally have been singularly um, unfortunate in, in, in the spokesmen that have been foisted on them. Once in a while, you get the Nelson Mandela's and the others who are, you know, are principled and forthright and across the board. But even then, it's subtle. I was here when Mandela came to New York the first time after being released. And I thought, this is going to be interesting. Here we are in sort of the center of the Israel lobby mm. in New York. And how are they going to react to this prominent, noisy spokesperson for the Palestinians? Not to mention Colonel Gaddafi at the time. So he got up and he said it. And you know what? Nothing happened because they carefully decided Mandela is a saint. If we attack Mandela, it's bad for us. So we'll just shut up about it and hope no one notices that he is saying what happened about the Palestinians is the same as the South Africans. Um, it's that type of mixture of, uh, you know, now you see it, now you don't, which they've been playing very cleverly. And once again, the Palestinians have had some incredibly inept spokespeople over the years. You know, they've their the, the diplomatic corps has been a shambles. When I was in London, <clears> I got involved. The Palestinian ambassador didn't speak English, which is a bit of an oversight for a city like London. Uh, and when they did try to get somebody, when people tried to get an English speaker there, they said, oh, no, can't have her. She's, she's seeing a foreigner. I mean, it's, it's semi-feudal, pretty awful stuff. Little imagination. Uh, the Palestinians have been good in their choice of friends. The people who've supported them are often very articulate and put the case much better than the governments. But such means... such as your good self, uh, Ian. And the, the com coming <laughs> coming in on the back of that, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about uh, you know double standards and also the um, the memory lapses that seem to take place, the self censorship that happens. Um, we've seen in recent weeks the report from Amnesty International telling Palestinians what they already knew, that essentially they were laboring under a system of apartheid not dissimilar to that uh, experienced in South Africa. The Harvard Law School has even joined in too. Uh, I think it must be day 30 or something without the New York Times managing to report uh, the Amnesty International report, despite it their... did, it did, it did oh, last week. I'm sorry. Oh, oh lovely. Okay. In, so a about... footnote, in a footnote covered by about six pages of. Oh, there we are. <laughs> we, we have the. And this is a, another dispiriting issue, I suppose, is that is the liberal media, which um, in different times was uh, 
highly uh, supportive, vociferous, active um, on the Palestinian front, but as Taken this never been that vociferous. It's well. never been that vociferous. They've all. Well, I mean, they've no, always I, I, the, say, with the Guardian here in Britain, for instance, there were, you know, recognised columnists who wrote quite freely. Uh, they had. They have to be summoned back down from retirement. You know, when Desmond Tutu dies, to to make that uh, the to write the piece which explained that Tutu had made that same. With, with, with the benefit of memory, Erskine Childers, who was uh, the son of the Irish president who did the first revelation that the Israelis had actually told the Palestinians to move. He got hold of the tapes, the monitoring tapes, that the Israelis had actually told the Palestinians to move out at the time of the Nakba, which had always been denied. He was almost banned from the United Nations. He was allowed in the United Nations on condition he never have a vociferous public place in it. Um, he was, I think he was, he was writing for The Spectator, and that stopped immediately afterwards. That's <laughs> uh, the same. I remember the first article I did on Palestine and going there was on um, the alternative vision of Palestine. And it took weeks of negotiations to get it in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the editor, it was, it was, it was, we smuggled it in through the travel section. I think it was yeah. Yuri Davis was trying to get a Palestinian <clears throat> tourism sector going. And uh, the, uh, the editor, he, he read it and he called me. He said, mm. he said, I ran it past some friends of mine. I said, Yes. He said, is it all true? I said, look, I've sourced everything. He said, well, mm. I ran it past some friends of mine uh, and uh, they're very pro-Israeli. And they said, uh, I said, well, is it true? And he said, they, he said, they told me, yeah, it's terrible. It's awful, but it's true. <laughs> well, he Ian... it. but he, he got, he, he, we, we got a complete letter writing campaign. The Guardian was never as brilliant as it thinks it is. And it's obviously over the last two years, um, it, it's deteriorated even further uh, in, in the face of accusations well, of anti-Semitism. I, I, have, I have to come in there because we, we had a situation just a few weeks ago. Um, this was before the Amnesty report, before Harvard, before, every, before everybody recognised the blindingly obvious about apartheid. Um, when Archbishop Desmond Tutu passed away, some of us remarked in the Guardian comment section where we could leave our comments that uh, it was a shame that the obituary, which was a, a fine obituary, ignored Desmond Tutu's and Jimmy Carter's, but particularly Desmond Tutu's uh, remarks about apartheid in Israel, uh, Palestine and South Africa. And th these comments were censored. They were stopped. They were blocked because they offended community standards, whatever they were. Um, and so uh, I wrote to the editor and Hyde Dudgeon and she apologised and said there was only one person on and this person had been doing such a very good job and it was a terrible mistake. Well, you know, these mistakes just keep on happening. And when I was kind of losing, I thought I was losing you earlier due to this fantastic technology, I had forgotten that today, what I meant to say was that today the UK and the Ukraine abstained on a vote at the United Nations Human Rights Committee to support accountability for Israeli violations of Palestinian human rights in the occupied territories, and then the US voted against, which is disappointing, uh, given uh, the, 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 the fact that most Ukrainians, if they knew what was happening uh, in Israel-Palestine, would immediately identify with the Palestinians. So we've got this disappointing situation there. But look, before we go to the next question, Omar, I think we've got um, a short video clip of a young Palestinian woman, Zainab Al-Kolak. She's 22 years old. Um, I think she lost a number of her 
family in Gaza and the bombing campaigns, and I think also that she spoke to the Human Rights Council. My name is Zainab Shukr I'm Palestinian from the Gaza Strip. And by some miracle, I'm still alive to speak to you today. After the Israeli forces bombed my home during Israel's attack on Gaza in May 2021, I was badly wounded and remained under the rubble for 12 hours before I was pulled up. After I woke up to the shock of losing 22 members of my family, life and death became alike to me. The bombing killed my mother Aman, my sister Hannah, my brothers Ahmed and Tahir, and my cousins and many other relatives. I can't name because I feel real pain my chest recalling this memory. All the houses in our neighborhood were flattened, although not a single armed person was among us and no military actions were carried out from our area. We were a group of defenseless people, anxiously hearing the sounds of shelling, carried death with them. I know that my loss is too great to be compensated, but my mother, my sister, my brothers, my family will rest in peace only when the perpetrators are held accountable. Mr. President, I want to know what progress has been achieved by the Commission of Inquiry that you formed after the Israeli attack. Was it able to identify those responsible for wiping off my family? Will, it, will real actions be taken to prevent similar tragedies? I'm now 22 and I've lost 22 people. Will I lose more when my next birthday comes before the international community take tangible steps to bring me justice? Well, there was a very powerful uh, presentation there from Zainab in, in, in front of the Human Rights Committee. Um, do you think they'll be taking much notice, Ian? It depends on the rest of us whether we keep it going. I mean, they have a war of attrition going on. You and I know many officials at the UN who have been who have tried very hard to get the issues forward, and successive human rights commissioners have been sidelined or dismissed because they've been too vociferous on the issue, from Mary Robinson onwards. And this was even with the good guys, with Kofi Annan, who sort of half sympathized. But, you know, he had that basic um, instinctive pro-Israel, pro-Zionist point of view, even though he was, a, in you know, a humanitarian at heart. So lots of people. I think you have a guest coming up soon uh, who, who, was, uh, who, who was one of the victims. Um, they, they get sidelined. And all the time, it's because the United States comes in. Now, funnily enough, um, it's where I'm almost nostalgic from Margaret Thatcher. When Margaret Thatcher was prime minister and the Americans said, you must support Israel, she said no. <laughs> and the, yeah. U, the, the UK voted with all the other members of the Security Council and the UN to condemn Israel, hmm. even when the US vetoed. It was Tony Blair who came in and made sure that... Uh, it was to some extent we're lucky to compromise because he made sure that Britain abstained on these resolutions instead of voting um, with with the rest of the membership. Now, that's slipped back a little bit now. Britain occasionally votes um, on the side of truth and justice um, rather than abstaining, and it hasn't gone the whole hog. But you see the type of pressure that's been on Canada. I mean, in the past, Canada was pretty much... Uh, an epitome on this one. It, it it stood up for Palestinian rights. It voted for the Human Rights Commission. For 10 years now, it's been one of the most slavish followers. It's 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 gone along with every American veto and and, and every uh, you know all, all of the American pronunciation without actually changing its policy on their website, which condemns Israeli occupation and Israeli settlement. But it but doesn't how, vote the other way. Think, how do you think this? war in Ukraine may change things because clearly 
you know, the those campaigning for Palestinian rights, campaigning for sanctions, for boycotts, had been battered back quite heavily. People were actually been quite frightened often to, to offer an opinion or to, to campaign. But I do think people might be emboldened because, you know, they can see that, um, you know, people do resist occupations. It's, it's not a new thing, by the way. I mean, the Americans had this in Vietnam. Um, but, you know, could, don't, do, don't do you think it's is all we can say. People have to keep coming back. But it's, it's a tremendous personal cost. You and I know many people in the British Labour Party who've been expelled for expressing these views, if so facto, on anti-Semitism. And th this has got to be combated right across the board. And uh, th there are times when you have to say, you know, it's when I first came to America 30 years ago now, <clears throat> it was much easier to be pro-Palestinian Britain than it was in America. Because here, people, Palestinians, who are they? Um, you know, you oh, you mean Arabs? They didn't know anything about it. But it's actually gone the other way now. It's, it's uh, more respectable because of the uh, First Amendment here to speak up on behalf of the Palestinians than it is in Britain. You know, you don't get expelled automatically from the <laughs> Democratic Party because you say the Palestinians might have a point when they're getting <laughs> shot and bombed. Um, but I see the thing coming up now about um, Jim wants to know what will it take to see the, 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 to get Israel practicing the crime of apartheid against the Palestinians taken seriously at the UN and ICC. And this is a cunning one, really, because the apartheid is, um, mm. it was there to, it was like genocide, whether you, whatever you call it. I mean, let's face it, killing lots of people is wrong, whether you call it genocide or not. And I think a lot of time was wasted on deciding whether something was genocide or wasn't genocide. You know, mass murder is bad enough. Um, and the same with apartheid, the discrimination and violations of the, of the um, Geneva Conventions are bad enough in their own right. The point about apartheid is it has particular legal connotations, as does genocide. In the United Nations system, it creates um, obligations under international law for governments to do something about it. And that's really why it's worthwhile doing the logic shopping and saying, no, this is apartheid. And it's why the Israelis have some very acute lawyers internationally. They know about these things and they fight them because they they fight a rear guard action. They are like trial lawyers in the United States, you know, dedicated to proving their rich clients um, innocent, regardless of, okay, you've seen, yes, we saw him with his fingers up the chest of the victim, but, you know, it wasn't what it looked like, really. We have other evidence to take into account. And it's that type of uh, dogged persistence by their lawyers and their advocates in, the, in public relations which, which goes, and the fact that those of us who do speak up about it tend to get whacked. And they won't allow, in generally, generally speaking, uh, Arabs will be immediately discounted if they try to speak about this. You know, so, you know, it, it, it's okay for uh, Alan Dershowitz to speak. No one suspects that he might possibly be in any way biased. <laughs> but if uh, Edward Said speaks up, distinguished professor at Columbia, oh, he, he's an Arab, it's biased, it, 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 it's... Uh, and bias is the word they always come up with. And, you know, I am biased. I'm biased against violations of human rights. I'm biased against inhumanity. Uh, and I make no apologies for that. This, this is, of course, the difficulty for many Palestinians who look in and also for 
um, you know, other peoples around the world. I mean, they look at the UN institutions and they say, well, you know, great, fantastic. We have the Charter, we have the Geneva Conventions, we have the International Criminal Court. Um, but it's always victor's justice, really, uh, because at the end of the day, do you ever see any any accused of war crimes from the West paraded in front of uh, the judges at The Hague? Well, no, you don't. You tend to see, you know, former dictators from Africa or, you know, from former Yugoslavia or what have you. And also when it comes to the International Criminal Court, we've got a lot of people, including Messrs Blair and Bush, um, calling for uh, action against Putin. Um, you know, uh, Putin, war crimes. Yes, it seems highly likely that Putin could be arraigned for war crimes if Russia was a signatory to the International Criminal Court. Um, and there was a, actually a crime of war crimes. Uh, of course, the United States isn't either. So the, you look at all of this and, and people say, well, you know, the institutions are there. But as ever, certain countries buy into them or don't, depending on how it suits them. At the risk of getting accused of anti-Semitism, there is no doubt whatsoever that the US defense of Israel at all costs over the last 30 years has led to a profound deterioration of international human rights mechanisms. The fact that any time action is taken, the US springs up regardless of the facts to defend Israel means that everybody else in the world say, so if not Israel, then why them? If you're going to get, if, if you don't get Netanyahu, why are you getting Milosevic? Mm -hmm. It has allowed every crook, genocidal maniac and kleptomaniac in the world to get a jet, get out of jail free card or get out of jail cheap card. Because if Israel can do it, so can we. And there's the US, as you say, it, it announced, denounced Putin, said he's a, he's a war criminal, but they still, Joe Biden still maintains Trump's sanctions against the International Criminal Court justices. They're not allowed in America. And mm. why is that? Israel. <laughs> there is another interesting point as well, which is a lot of the um, Western media has been rather taken with the fact that Russia has been so horribly and deservedly isolated at the General Assembly with only five other or four other countries voting with them. I think Belarus, North Korea, uh, Eritrea and Syria. I mean, uh, a, a sort of a, a legion of a small legion of evil you cannot better imagine. But they fail to remark that when it comes to votes on Palestine, it's usually the United States with one or two others, including a place called Palau, which I challenge anybody watching today to find out. Oh, no, sorry, I've, uh, oh, I've got a lot of respect for Palau. Like Palau, Palau fought against the United <laughs> States over nuclear weapons for a long time. But it, it, <laughs> its entire budget is derived from the United States Congress. <laughs> and so the other sundry coral atolls which support Israel. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that's what it is. It's a real yeah. handful of coral well, atolls. Will look, we've got a couple of questions here. Um, Deborah in Carlisle says, this week, um, a city twinning endeavour between uh, Edinburgh in Scotland and a, and, and a city in Gaza was blocked by the local council after a complaint for lawyers for Israel UK. Um, I mean, what, what, what do you make of what do you make of the situations like the twinning? I mean, I remember when Dundee twinned with, um, was it Nablus? That yes, was George yeah. Galloway, I suspect. Yeah, so but don't, I think don't it been, the point is, it was nothing particularly controversial. He was on Dundee Trades Council, as I remember. Yeah, <laughs> but nothing controversial about um, 
uh, cities in Britain twinning with Palestinian cities. But here we have, if Deborah is right, um, twinning endeavour between Edinburgh and a city in Gaza. There, there are there are answers here if people get to them. I mean, it is up to the people in Edinburgh to get better lawyers and to go there and say, this is blank, blank, blank. Your legal <laughs> advice is completely erroneous. <laughs> lawyers are expensive. We need to know. We need to know. Yeah, well, there's, there's probably more lawyers. lawyers who would come in on this one, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, who do pro bono work. So <laughs> I remember, by the way, when the British Foreign Office people used to tell us that Hamas was a political party with uh, connections to terrorists. They refused for many years to label Hamas as a terrorist organization because they knew they had to deal with the elected representatives in Gaza, which everyone forgets about. I mean, terrorism is one of those words that comes in and it's almost meaningless. It always sounds like tourism to me, terrorism, tourism. It's um, it, it, it's a meaningless concept. For years at the UN, it's one of the great mysteries, they have sought to define terrorism, and nobody can. Because why is it terrorism for somebody to walk in and blow themselves up in a city, but it's valiant military effort to fly over in a bomber and drop a couple of hundred weights of TNT on the people down below? One gets you a medal, the other gets you labelled as a terrorist. One gets you as an international outlaw. And we really have to be careful about using these terms, and we do, uh, very haphazardly. We should say, yep, yeah, you know, murder is wrong. And most of the laws about murder apply to terrorism. If somebody goes in and blows up a pub, that's murder. You call it terrorism, and it adds a whole unnecessary dimension to it. Well, uh, I remember the there was a war on trying to wrestle with this definition. What well, well, war on terror became American foreign policy, as we know. But look, there's another question. I think the war on drugs and the war, the war on poverty. Yes. Look at the success of those endeavors. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. But look, the um, just I think we haven't got a, a great deal more time. But before we go, I mean, there are analogous situations, and one that you've been involved in for many years. Actually, there are a couple come to think of it, one which we've both been involved in many years, which has been the battle to get um, the Chagos Islands returned to their lawful owners and, uh, the, and their inhabitants. Um, the Chagos Islands uh, illegally taken, really, by Britain. We know this international law has, has moved heavily against Britain, but Britain still remains in occupation of the Chagos Islands and the island of Diego Garcia in in particular for strategic reasons we know why but it still doesn't get, get away from the fact that the general assembly has voted overwhelmingly for britain to obey international law and return the chagos islands to uh, mauritius the other is of course western sahara um 1975 it was spanish sahara the spanish left morocco and mauritania invaded you ian have been campaigning on this issue for years so there's a question here from david harding um can ian give us his views on spain changing its position over Western Sahara. What, what does it, how does this correspond also with the situation in the occupied territories, Palestinian territories? Well, it, it corresponds in two different ways. One is, it's quite clear under international law, almost every country in the world recognizes that Western Sahara is occupied territory. The Moroccans are occupying it illegally and in defiance of the wishes of the people. It's fought off having a referendum, which it's promised for 50 years now, 50 years, they've been promising a referendum and they took the Israeli playbook. You keep promising, yes, we'll do the referendum, but they can't vote and they can't vote and we'll have the referendum then. And maybe we should reconsider the referendum. 
So they've been talking about it for 50 years and doing nothing. And now Spain is a despicable position. Probably what I say about them best be said in Spanish on a family TV show. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll avoid that. But it's a very pertinent one because, once again, Trump administration, the first and only country in the world to give explicit legal recognition to the Moroccan occupation. The first and only one. I don't think even France, who is uh, Morocco's best friend, has gone that far because there's an international judgment about it saying that this is occupied territory. And they've, they've gone ahead with this. And what do we find? Biden has not walked it back. Biden's ambassador to Morocco weaseled about it, never quite said it's there, but they said it shouldn't be an impediment to Morocco getting military aid because there's there are rules in America that you're not supposed to get military aid if you have nuclear weapons. Has anyone told the Israelis lately? You're not supposed to get aid if you're occupying other countries in defiance of uh, in, in international law. But Biden's ambassador said this was okay. And uh, it, it, it isn't okay. But I also have to say, and this is apropos of what I was saying earlier about the worst representatives, is apart from Algeria, the rest of the Arab world is letting the Western Sahara, the Sahwaris go swing. Do you remember the parallels here? These Moroccans actually built a separation wall before the Israelis. The Israelis might have hired Moroccan consultants. They built a sand wall right across the territory. <clears throat> And shot everyone trying to pass it. They threw most of the population out. They marginalized them. The ones who are left behind the wall, they've terrorized. So, I mean, this is the other wall and the other occupation. And Arabs and Arab supporters uh, in general have been shamefully silent about it. Once again, it's the theme of this show is consistency. We should be denouncing that. And yes, there's the king of Morocco. He is, I believe... He was chairman of the League of Arab States Committee on Jerusalem. This mm. is the guy who's practically in Israeli's bed all the time, and he's chair of the Arab League. So, you know, sometimes this spurious solidarity on so-called ethnic grounds from Arabs has to go out the window mm. and, and get down to the ethical and political quick of it all. That, but, you know, in, in a way... They're scumbags, and they, they, we, we should not support them, except in extremists. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in, in so many ways, Ian, we've really been talking about sort of state positions, the hypocrisy and lack of consistency of state positions, whether it's over Ukraine, over Western Sahara, over the Palestinian territories, over the Chagos Islands, or whatever. Um, but what actually binds everybody, to, which can bind all of us together as citizens... Um, is a belief that none of these things are acceptable wherever they happen. Um, and therefore, it should, as you've been saying all the way through, embolden us. Uh, and if anything, the uh, the, uh, the appalling nature of this uh, Russian uh, invasion and partial occupation of Ukraine is wakening people up to the horrors of war and conflict, um, but also what it means uh, if uh, you are under occupation. And for people in um, Palestine, um, particularly since in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Golan and Gaza, uh, who have been under occupation now for uh, well over 50 years, uh, it's uh, it's a salutary. It must be a salutary sight for them to see what's going on um, and hoping, uh, are hoping to see that solidarity that we're seeing over Ukraine repeated globally. Well, look, 
Ian, we should be calling for sanctions, not BDS. BDS is the is the mealy mouth way out. We should be calling for government sanctions against Israel until it abides by the international law and the decision which it has claimed that it will do. Um, so sanctions is the way to go. That's how it worked with South Africa. We worked out through popular onto sanctions. Absolutely, sanctions right now against Russia, big time. Yes, uh, we're, not, we're not calling it for. There's no sort of voluntary boycott, divest, and sanctions movement uh, against Russia. But it's let us remember, well, well, since we're talking about ethical comparisons and the world is connected, Israel was the biggest conduit for breaking sanctions on South Africa. <laughs> the fuel went in, paid for through Israel. The diamonds came out through Israel. The weapons went into South Africa, including its nuclear weapon, through Israel. And now, where are the oligarchs all fleeing to with their ill-gotten gains? Where are they, you know, apart from the Emirates, which is basically Israel, uh, offshore Israel now, um, what are they doing? They're providing a haven for all of these oligarchs and, and, and looters and kleptokies from, uh, from, from, from Russia and Ukraine. Well, on that less than cheery thought, we sadly have to call an end to today's fantastic interview with uh, our great friend Ian Williams, president of the Foreign Press Association of New York City and so much more. Ian, thank you very much and we'll look forward to uh, seeing and hearing from you very, very soon. Thank you so much and thank you all for watching and for your questions tonight. Thank you.